Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesdays with Townsend, a podcast from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. My name's Ben Whittinghill. It's my privilege to sit down each week with one of my fellow pastors and dear friends, David Townsend, to discuss questions about challenging issues, questions of faith, and sometimes random topics. Our goal is to serve you as you seek to follow Jesus faithfully in our post-Christian world. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to another Tuesdays with my man, David Townsend. David, good to see you, man. Good to see you too. Happy to be here. So, um, man, we've been, uh, last week we kind of dove into this idea of apologetics and defending the faith. And I think in a post-Christian world, one of the questions that people run into most is, wait, you actually believe the Bible? Right. I mean, how can, how can we know that the scriptures are true and, and why is it important? And uh, we know that the, the Bible is the basis of everything that Christians believe. We have, we have no faith if not for the Christian scriptures. Right. Um, I just read earlier today. Um, so it, for anybody that's watching this on Facebook Live, I want to show you this book. This is called A Guide to the Bible by a brother named Tim Challies. And uh, I highly recommend it. It's a it's a visual theology and it gives a lot of tidbits about um, some of the substance of what we hope to talk about today, the truthfulness yeah. of the scriptures um, and has a lot of neat visuals for um, defending the truthfulness of the Bible, but knowing how we got the Bible and other things like that. But in the intro of this book, um, I read, guess how many copies of, well, I think I already told you, so it's going to be like cheating but you'll sound smarter. You'll sound even smarter. I, mean, I don't so remember the exact number. How many copies of the Bible are bought? Just an estimate in the United States every year. 20 million. 40. 40 million. 40 million yeah. copies of the Bible every year. Um, and uh, it is believed to be the divinely inspired book that God gave people so that we could know him by a quarter of the world. Right. Um, it's history's all-time best-selling book uh, because of that. And most people, even though most people in the United States have one in their house, you probably could also say that most people don't actually believe that it's the Word of God, at least where we live. That is true. Yeah. I mean, I, I think our society at large would be a much different place, a very different place if people actually considered the Bible to be true and authentic and as having authority over their lives. Yeah. So I think that one of the places we should start is the, how the Bible uh, testifies to itself or, yeah. or, and I'm not even necessarily talking about here, how it testifies to itself in just it, it, the way that God speaks through it supernaturally. That I think right. is the biggest proof of the Bible is just the proofs in the pudding, right? Like if you don't believe that the Bible isn't the word of God, go read the gospels and ask God to speak to you and see what happens. So that, that's sort of like test number one. But what does the Bible say about itself um, that would speak to even its claims that, to be the scriptures? 
Yeah, so I think to preface this, one thing that we're going to be discussing specifically is the New Testament today. And uh, the reason being is as Christians, we are we are professing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he confirmed the historicity and the, um, the authority and the fact that the Old Testament is the Word of God. So for us, um, we have we have the proof of the old testament confirmed in the new testament and so i don't i don't think you know for the sake of today's conversation we need to uh, spend time regarding the old testament uh, because the new testament affirms over and over and over again that the old testament scriptures are the word of god and so we're specifically going to be looking at the new testament but um throughout the new testament uh, it's affirmed right in fact um there in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is communicating what I would call the rule of faith. Like, what is it that is the apostolic tradition? You know, what was uh, received from the apostles from the Lord Jesus and then communicated uh, through their preaching and teaching uh, and the establishment of churches throughout Asia Minor and throughout the Mediterranean. And it's this, like, what is the rule of faith? And he he actually goes over this in 1 Corinthians 15 and at each kind of uh, signpost, he says, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And he's certainly alluding to um, the Old Testament. But then we also see in Peter's second letter that he... Hey, David, can I pause you real quick? Sure. Can you, can you pin your mic the other way? I think it's muffled a little bit. I don't know if that piece, the microphone piece, it doesn't have to look pretty, but you sound prettier when, when we can see it. Technical difficulty, but I think it's going to serve the podcast for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. So first, Peter. Right. Is that better? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I'm specifically looking at second Peter, actually. Okay. But um, the, um, well, I know you had mentioned earlier that first Peter text, right? As far as how. We have this. Uh, uh, yeah, Second Peter one. Second Peter one, right? We have this more sure thing in the scriptures, right? Uh, Peter is writing, and he uh, is saying that, look, we've seen and heard him, right? We we have seen Jesus, and yet we have a more sure thing in the scriptures. And then later too, he says here. Let me find it in um, at the end of chapter one that, uh, and we have the prophetic word, right? This continuation of this more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. And so the new Testament writers, Peter specifically is saying that what we have preached and what has been proclaimed, whether from the prophets of old or um, in the apostolic tradition of the New Testament, has been the Word of God and inspired by the Word of God. And then furthermore, later in the letter, um, <clears throat> there's this very interesting uh, like interaction. He says, he's talking about when the Lord will return and when the end times basically will, will happen. And He's saying, look, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, 
also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so as early as the 60s, you know, so 30 years after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, you have the apostle Peter affirming that the writings of Paul were scripture and were considered as such. And he even says, look, they're even hard to understand, but <laughs> they're, they're inspired like the other scriptures. And that's huge um, because that, that takes us right into what criteria there was for uh, canonicity. And so I'm going to pause there. When we talk about the New Testament, we're talking about the canon of scripture, not like a weapon, but different spelling, but it comes from the Greek word kanon, which means read or measuring stick. And so what we're saying is that the canon of scripture is the rule that this is the word of God, nothing more and nothing less. By this measure, we have the word of God. And so the question then is, what, what is considered canon, right? What is and what qualifies as canon? And how did the church arrive at what we know as canon? Because many letters were being written in the apostolic age and in the age, uh, and in the patristic age. Um, but I mean, we're talking hundreds, really, if you consider Gnostic writings. So why did we arrive at 27 books of the New Testament and not, nothing less and nothing more? Yeah. And I think, you know, you what the scripture says about itself, like just from P Peter's second letter alone that you just now cited from. So, so many people, you know, you hear them say like, I wish that I just could hear God. I wish he would just write it in the sky. And here's Peter saying, what you have in your hands is more sure than that, more right. sure than God showing up and writing it down on a personalized note to you. He had, he's given us his word in the same way. Right. Um, Paul telling Timothy, all scriptures, God breathed, it's yeah. inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is, it's, it's what Christians need to walk by faith and to live a life that's pleasing to God. It's how we, it's how God's communicated himself is what the scriptures says about itself. Um, and I think about, I was reading in Isaiah um, last week and God tells Isaiah to cry out all flesh is grass and it's beauty. It's like the flower of the field, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yeah. And so you have as like one giant apologetic is that when everybody who argues against the truthfulness of the Bible is dead and gone, the Bible will still be here. Yeah. And it has, outla it has outlasted all of its critics because the word of our Lord stands forever. Right. So you have the Bible's own self-authenticating witness, right? In the way that God speaks through it and in what it says about itself. So then the question becomes, well, is it true, David? How right. do we know? What are some ways that um, even from, from history or from how the Bible was compiled or how it was recognized, how can Christians know with confidence that this is not just like wishful thinking. This is not just uh, a right. blind leap of faith that, right. that these are 
reliable documents. So you mentioned the first criteria of canonicity already in that the scriptures are self-evidencing or they have a self-affirming quality to them. And so the early church um, were looking at several criteria that would authenticate uh, what could be considered scripture. And it's important to know this and how this answers the question partly because we have to understand that the Bible was not written in a vacuum, right? There, there were not, there was not just a, a one man or a couple of men who decided to come up with this really elaborate story. But the fact is that the writings of the Bible spanned millennia. Right, we're talking thousands of years from the Book of Job being considered the earliest writing of the Old Testament, all the way to the latest of writings, uh, which would be the Johannine stuff and Revelation. Right, so the, John's writings in the New Testament. So we're we're talking that they span thousands upon thousands of years in human history, and that, so none of this happened in a vacuum, and they all attest to self and confirm. Um, and that's part of that uh, self-attesting, self-evidencing quality. So that's the first criteria. Uh, two would be that they were all accepted by early churches. Um, right at this point in history, there was no papacy. Right, there was no superior, you know, ruling, governing body in charge to say this is scripture, this isn't, this isn't. But the churches recognized these writings as scripture because of their uniqueness and their self-evidencing quality. And so they received it as scripture and used it as a part of their worship, um, which is evidence that they are what they say they are. Because why would anyone of their own volition submit to these writings as the authoritative word of God if they aren't as such without the pressure out from, from without or from within, Right. Right. There was no, there was no governing body saying this is scripture, use it for worship, but separately from each other, all these different churches were using the same letters for the worship of God and for shaping their faith and practice. Right. And Justin Martyr, uh, who was an early church father uh, in the middle of the second century. So we're talking about the the mid one hundreds. He, he actually wrote this. So a little backstory, a little, you know, background of him. He was searching for truth. He was seeking it and he was looking in uh, to the Stoics. He was looking at uh, Pythagoras, at various other philosophies. And a man told him, you should search the Jewish prophets. And it was in reading the scriptures that he was assaulted, confronted with the truth of the gospel. And that's what led to his conversion. And um, many people have a story similar to that. That's part of my story to really being uh, like awakened and apprehended by Jesus was through his word. And, th- you know, they knew more about me than I knew about myself. And there's a peculiarity to the scriptures that no other book in human history has. So, um, you know, that's why, again, that self-evidencing quality is number one, but then two would be the acceptance of it by many New Testament churches um, or, you know, apostolic age, patristic age churches. And then Justin Martyr writes this, On the day called the day of the sun, so Sunday, all who live in cities or in country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. 
and you you see that early churches were not only reading the prophets, but they were reading the apostolic writings. And so the writings, the letters of the apostles were seen on par, right, with the prophets of the Old Testament. And so that's the proof for criteria number two. And then the third criteria would be that all books that qualify as canon were written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle, um, a close associate. So that's how Luke is an author in the New Testament because he was an associate of Paul, right? And the one kind of questionable book as far as uh, authorship goes is Hebrews. Um, Some people think Paul wrote it. Uh, Some people think Barnabas wrote it, who again would have been an associate of Paul. But it was so clear that given the information in Hebrews and the content that this individual had to have been an apostle or an associate of an apostle because of the authority that was uh, written, it was written with, and two, it, it met the other criterion. So, um, but yeah, so there is, again, all, all that I think sums up the answer, but also banking on last week's discussion, we said how the, you know, we discussed how the resurrection is the proof in the pudding. You know, even the scriptures would fall short if there wasn't a historical event in the Christ. And so I'm not saying they're separate, but the two attest to one another, right? Well, he's, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Right. That's, the Bible is God's breath on a page, but he is not just, it's not just that he has spoken and will not speak again, but that he has spoken and revealed himself in a final way in the scriptures. Right. Has closed the canon, but still actively speaks through his living word because he's alive. And uh, James, the brother of Jesus, you know, our, our discipleship group is studying this and it's so moving that uh, James was not, did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. Despite the fact growing up with him and him being perfect, <laughs> which would have been super annoying as a younger brother, right? Um, like, why can't you just be more like Jesus? Like it's the same thing we say to our kids. Right. Um, and I remember being in college and, um, this apologist coming in and saying, Hey, how many of you have older brothers? And, you know, a handful of us raise our hands and it's like, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? I was like, okay, I believe in the resurrection, you know, like (laughs) it's pretty good proof, but, um, yeah, just the Testament of, of James, like what the resurrection did to him and changing him from just being a, a brother who grew up with him to I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And this is scripture and he's God and he's alive. And yeah, um, absolutely, I think that that's, that's what happens. Do not read the Bible if you're not, if you don't want to run the danger or the risk of becoming a follower of Jesus, because he says, this is the truth and the truth will set you free. If you're not interested in freedom or in Jesus, then don't read them because it's a supernatural book. Right. The word is peculiar. It is supernatural and it's sharp and it will cut you. Um, it, we consider it the written word, right? We, we, uh, as Protestants consider Jesus, the living word, right? The logos as John describes him in John one and the, the Bible is the written word. And, 
it's because in Jesus, we have the living revelation of God, right? He's the image of the invisible God. And in the Bible, we have the written revelation of God, um, which is, and then that kind of brings the question of, well, what about, I think we need, we should probably discuss, um, I think we should probably discuss, um, um, the, um, like, how do we know what was written wasn't just, dis, you know, uh, like contrived by man, right? How do we know it wasn't just um, made up thoughts or corrupted by man? And the, the theological and hermeneutical kind of term for describing what we have as scripture, it would be, or the, how we received it is called verbal plenary. It, it simply means that um, men were not possessed in such a way that they had no control of their faculties, but in the sovereignty of God and really in his providence, he ordained everything that was written using their circumstances, their history, their personality, their writing style, right? Uh, all that was them was used to put forth his words, and that's what we mean, and that's uh, by verbal plenary. And so, it's not to say that there's not historical context, grammatical context, right, or any other thing, but rather that um, they're trustworthy, and we know them to be the word of God as they were written, even though they were written by humans that err. It is distinct and um, self-evident that it is not errant. Yeah, it. it God gave us a. a he wrote his word like he does everything. He can do it alone, but he chooses to use people. And the only thing more mind-blowing than him possessing somebody and them not knowing what was going on and him writing it through their faculties is him inspiring somebody and working through personality. Um, right. Which is, it's completely shows off his providence and his, uh, his power to use broken people to do to produce something right. That's supernatural. Right. I mean, the story of the scriptures is that uh, throughout history, God's achieving his purposes, right? In revealing himself and redeeming a people for himself so that they can share in and enjoy his glory and the community of the Godhead. And all along the way, he's doing that by uh, taking crooked sticks and drawing straight lines. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the story of redemption. And so to think that God is unable to communicate his word to us through fallible man is conceited and, you know, and tri- I mean, it's conceited and short-sighted um, as far as I'm concerned. So bro, if you were going to give somebody sort of like your summary bullet points of here's how you can know that the Bible is the word of God and why, look, if the Bible is the word of God, but we don't accept it as such, then it doesn't do us any good. I think one of the greatest travesties in the world is for the living word of God to sit idle and unused on the shelves of people and Christians all over the world. So it doesn't do us any good if it's really the truth and we're not appropriating it. So right. give us a, give us kind of a one, two punch in closing on how can, how can we know that the Bible is reliable and why should people read it, especially if they haven't read it much? 
Yeah. So one of the ways we describe the Bible as far as um, like de- descriptions of its content, we say it's authoritative. We, we say it's inerrant and infallible. And so what we mean by that is as authoritative, we're saying that it really is the word of God to us. So it has authority over how we live. And don't worry, I'm transitioning into your into your question. Mm-hmm. By inerrant, we're saying that it is without error, right, in its entirety. And infallibility basically means that it will not cause us to stumble, right? It will not cause us to fall. Because of its truthfulness, it is good. And um, so my charge to anybody who questions that, um, whether you're seeking whether you're a critic or whether you just want to know more of God and you truly are like, you know, seeking him and his ways would simply be to read it because I, I think you could even hedge. I would hedge a bet that says, if you go to the scriptures humbly, you will be shaken. Yeah. It will rock your world and it will pierce your heart and it will unveil depths of who you are that you didn't even know existed. Hmm. And it will expose you because it knows the intent of your heart and mind. And I, I promise you that. Yeah. I, I, I thought about this one um, objection that I, that I've heard and we do need to close it. Um, but I, I want to, I want to deal with this because I think it's important. Sure. You hear people saying, um, well, what about like, what about all the, the mess and the characters and the, the people are so messed up in the sure. Bible. And then, um, you know, God seems like he's different in the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, which is so untrue, usually heard by like people picking up fragments. It's like, right. It's like somebody watching a sermon that you preach on a Sunday and picking up a 10 second clip and then saying, Hey, look what he said when it was part of a larger message. Right. Um, so, um, I mean, I can deal with the, like the character of God. You read the Old Testament. He is long-suffering, merciful, generous, kind, and a, a righteous and a holy God uh, right. who cannot turn a blind eye to sin. And that, that confronts us. People don't yeah, like absolutely. that because we don't like having an authority that we're accountable to. Right. So the Bible's not going to budge on that. But, but in terms of God being different in the old and the new, that would be resolved by reading the Bible. Yes, hundred percent. But how do you resolve sort of people like citing, you know, slaves and misogyny and um, you know the different stories of like abuse or or murder? Is is the Bible holding those out as okay? Is it a violent book or how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think first of all, we we can't remove the Bible from its historical context when we're reading a given portion of the Bible, and also. Nowhere in those events does it say God condones that type of behavior. Right. And oftentimes we'll see subsequent um, judgment or condemnation for those things. But Israel was very uh, truthful in their representation of self, right? They didn't hide their sin in their history. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to look at how corrupt and, and just unlawful and vile Israel was, and to say that that God accepted that is a total misappropriation of the Bible. And you didn't, you clearly didn't read it, you know? Um, and so that would be my first object or, you know, answer to that objection. 
The second would be that a lot of the laws of God specifically to Israel were laws that, that afforded the most good, the most justice, and the most mercy given the civil norms of the day. For instance, in the law, we see that if a woman, and, I'm, and this is abhorrent, right, that this, that this type of thing happens, but this is sin. If a woman is raped, the law demanded that she marry the, the, the one who, who abused her. Why? Because society would have cast her out as one who was made unclean. But by being married to him, he's forced to provide for her, and she accepts, she receives his inheritance. And he still is condemned by the rule of the day for his act. So it seems like so criminal, right, that we would force a woman to, and again, I'm not saying this applies today. This, is, this happened in a time and a place. But it seems criminal that God would, would allow or even uh, command that a woman be stuck with, uh, you know, her abuser. But it, in that day and in that age and in that context was the most good, just, and merciful thing towards her because God cares. What you said about the historical context is so important because people will say, well, David, all right, so you're choosing, you're picking and choosing. Like you love the New Testament, you love these parts, you pick off sure. some Psalms, but you're going to jettison this law that was never meant to be binding on you or on me, but applied specifically to the nation of Israel as right. a, in sort of like a theocratic yes. kind of governance. Yeah, now, absolutely. But I think when dealing with um, the immoral behavior of the different characters in the Bible, I think... You know, you read some some like children's books or Sunday school classes, and they're going to hold up these Bible characters as as people to emulate and to follow. But the entire message of the Bible is a gospel centered from the very beginning of, in Genesis, all the way to it closing in Revelation. All of the Bible points to Jesus, and the message yeah. of the Bible is not um, look at all these good righteous people. God picks them to be on His team, but look how messed up humans are and humans have made the world and God and his love and his mercy reaches out to them in kindness to draw them to repentance, to reconcile them to himself. Um, We could not get to God on our own. So God came to get us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Mm. he is the theme of the Bible that absolutely all the Bible either show off, shows off the brokenness of humanity in need of a savior or points to the promise of the coming savior or points to the savior who came. Right. And um, so that is how the Testaments fit together. And it's not picking and choosing to say, Hey, this was, this applied in their specific context under that historical time and in that relationship. But Jesus has set us free. Right. From having to, uh, perform these rules to get a relationship with God. And he's come to be the fulfillment of all these things that we needed right. so that he could bring us to God. Absolutely. You, you see that though, even those laws given their, their time and in, in their context revealed to us the character of God. And it shows that he is loving, that he's merciful, that he's long suffering and that he's faithful to his people. And as you just said, Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment of all that. 
He is the, the one to whom all those things are pointing to. And so it says that, uh, it, it says in the scriptures that Jesus is the, the end of righteousness as far as the law is concerned, right? That he is the fulfillment of the righteousness as far as the law is concerned. And so we have the substance that Israel was longing for. And we have the freedom from sin and from self and from the law even, right? The condemning uh, consequences of the law in Jesus. And that narrative is faithful throughout the scriptures. And God's providence in all of it, in providing for his people and making them, like providing for them a way, a way of rescue is consistent. And furthermore, the early church, they, they, they read Jesus from the Old Testament, right? The, the New Testament was being written, and they were often preaching from the Old Testament. So I think it's a bit naive to assume that there's a disconnect and not be willing to do the reading um, and to, to really see for ourselves whether or not that disconnect exists, because the early church certainly did not see a disconnect. They preached Christ and Christ crucified from the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah. Well, I think in the future, it might be helpful to deal with even how Christians can think about the law and yeah, and in what the New Testament teaches about the law, um, how the law is righteous and holy and good and not to be jettisoned, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And um, man, time would yeah, fit. Did I, did I, did I like butcher that? I, I was paraphrasing what? earlier. Did I butcher that? I think it said Galatians 5. But uh, That's good. I think time would fail us, man, to get into like manuscript type evidence. Um, but it is there for people to go look at, again, this visual theology guide to the Bible. So compelling uh, and artfully done and just showcases how, I mean, compared to even other works of history, how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament with the earliest uh, being found within decades of, of them being written, which is hundreds and hundreds of years sooner to the original source of writing than most historical documents that people take is just fact, whether it be the Iliad and the Odyssey or sure. yeah. or whatever, that, that the New Testament is as authentic of a historical document as you can possibly have. It's the, it's the most authentic one that we have. Um, and so uh, it is reliable. And um, man, we can just give testimony from our own personal lives that uh, God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures and it's how we know him and enjoy him every day. And uh, I've never regretted time spent in the word of God. Yeah, me neither. It, so. it, uh, it's always been a source of, of life and uh, satisfaction, always. Oh. Man, give us, a random, give us a random tidbit for the day. Shut this down. Sure. The larch tree is a deciduous evergreen. It is one of the few, basically, pine trees that actually lose its needles. And is the larch decidu- tree. The larch, yeah. Sure. Where does that grow? There's some, I think, around here. Um, and I know because someone told me a while back that it was a skit also in Monty Python. They had a song every time they panned to the larch. It would say, the larch, the larch, the larch. But yes, there are larches in New England. In fact, I do remember seeing some up in uh, North New Hampshire.
Listen, some of these random facts are going to make people feeling like they're losing their marbles because they're so random. You just call them large trees. Right. See you. Thanks for joining us for Tuesdays with Townsend. We invite you to join us on Facebook Live each Tuesday at noon where you can submit questions and comments. If this podcast has served you, it would greatly help us if you leave a review on iTunes and share it with your friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you next Tuesday.